In uh, this past week, I have been um, looking through the closets in our house for some old vestments. Now, I don't have a lot of vestments. I have one or two of these, um, and I have some stoles. A lot of us have a lot of stoles. But I also am so fortunate to have been gifted a stole and a chasuble, which is what Nicole is wearing, and a cope, which is what I'm wearing today. I know, eyebrow raise is right. A co I have my own personal cope. Um, and it's wi a white set. And I was looking for the whole set because Emily is going to be ordained a priest on Saturday in New York. Yep. And part of what you have to do when you get ordained a priest is you get dressed as a priest for the first time. So all of these priests, these new people, you've got to put a chasuble on them. Um, so usually what happens is the church that you're serving in or the church that sponsors you brings it because they're heavy, you, you, as you see. They're unwieldy garments. But we're going to New York for this because that's where she's been, she's been sponsored from. And St. Mark's in the Bowery, where I served, um, is not known for their fine assortment of vestments <laughs> yet. That might change. So we were looking at our white sets and we realized maybe we didn't, we didn't want to show up not as glorious as we should, and um, I remembered that I had one, and I found it. St. Albans in Westwood, in 2001 or two, decided they should get me this gift of these vestments, and I thought it was too much. They're so expensive, as you all know, if you've ever been on those committees, and even the most modest, simple polyester with a nice drape is still really expensive. And I was in my 20s and just out of seminary, and it all just seemed like so much money. I could not imagine a future of needing these things. I couldn't have imagined 23 years later that I'd actually get a lot of wear out of them, that I'd still be around. But they could. So they bought them, and they've been, they're mostly in my closet. I wear the cope for weddings and funerals that are not in a church, because I've got it. I can haul it around. And it looks like it's been used for that. It's muddy on the bottom. And I pulled out the chasuble for Emily, which we realized will fit and can go and I remembered St. Albans in Westwood. And there's so much good to remember about them, but I remembered on this September 10th, 2023, that we were preparing for, that I was there on September 11th in 2001. And I had come there um, from New York, where I'd gone to seminary at Union, and I'd been there about two years, almost two years, year and a half, really, when that happened. Actually, excuse me, exactly two years. And it was a Tuesday. And I got a call first thing in the morning from someone who, was, um, who, was, uh, who had just stopped working at one of the towers and moved to Los Angeles. And I had friends that worked in the towers and phones rang and it was a horrible, horrible day um, that I know a lot of us relive this time of year. And that week we didn't go to church that often, I'm sure because we were all stunned for days, but there wasn't a lot of programming or activity at church that week. So when I pulled in on Sunday morning, the 16th, I remember being really nervous. The rector and I had decided that we would both talk for about five minutes. Um, it was a hard Sunday to preach. We still didn't really know what had happened. Um, I think we were afraid of what was gonna happen next, which is so hard to imagine because our lives have now been defined for 20 years by what happened and what happened right after. But I'm two years into this new job in Los Angeles. Um, I am in my 20s in a congregation full of people that have a lot more wisdom than me, which has always been my fate, right? That's where I always find myself. Um, and and a, living a different experience than them, frankly, um, in 
uh, in who my communities were and how they were impacted by this horrible, horrible moment. So I got up, and I'm sure I talked really fast and nervously and probably not directly into the microphone, and I hope I said some comforting things, and I hope I said some true things, and then I did tell the story of the grief and fear of some of my friends who had immediately been targeted, um, mistaken for Muslims, which was part of what happened in those weeks, and what they had done to keep themselves safe. Um, and it felt hard to say. Really felt hard to say in front of these people that I loved and had known for two years. I remember pulling into the driveway that morning and seeing the cars with their American flags, which of course you would do after a day like that, and then wondering what they meant and wondering what it really meant and who we really were. And I didn't know what to do but to say the things I had said because I didn't have any more skill than that, right? I was a very new priest. And then the rector got up, this Japanese American man in his 60s. And he got up and said wise, beautiful, comforting words. But he stood up and said them and sat down and I realized what had happened two years in. Every time we did a birthday party celebration for Norm, there was that picture of him as a three-year-old on his tricycle, it was the earliest picture they had. Um, and it was in an internment camp, that picture. That's what it said on the bottom. And he never spoke of it, but everybody knew. And what a powerful thing for that man to stand up, that all-American who had signed up for Korea and led this Episcopal church for all of his adult life, that parish, to stand up and try to be comforting and warm and kind in that moment. What I learned at St. Albans that day is what it means to belong. So that happened, and I was still terrified at the end of the service. I still don't remember who celebrated. I don't remember most of the day. What I remember is walking out after the service to stand in line in that beautiful courtyard with roses and olive trees and a fountain because Los Angeles, Bel Air, it was beautiful, to shake people's hands. And people came and shook my hand and said different things, so many New York connections I had not known about. And then I felt a little kind of shadow over my head. Sometimes you can feel when someone's behind you. And I could see the shadow on the ground in front of me. And it didn't move, so I turned, and there were three really tall guys from church standing behind me, like all dressed up. It was kind of a fancy church that way, and they had bow ties on, looked really sharp. Um, and they weren't friends, I knew them. Kind of a diverse group behind me. And they were just standing there, still, and didn't say anything, and stood there until everyone had shaken my hand. I don't know that I've ever felt that I belonged as much as I did in that moment. That week, I had talked to a young man, student at UCLA, who had enlisted. All his bright, barely 20 energy with his fiance, who looked so proud and so terrified. But wow, had he found his purpose. He was gonna go do something to protect this land that was his. And he asked me, interestingly, for a prayer, that's all he wanted, and a church in Georgia, because that's where he was going. He was gonna be stationed first in Georgia, so I looked it up for him and found some Episcopal churches that he could go to. While I sat there thinking on behalf of his mother, I should do everything I can to make sure he goes nowhere. But of course it wasn't, wasn't up to me. Church contains all of it, doesn't it? all of it. And we hear today in the readings how we find our way in all of it. So the first reading is about Passover and it's brutal. 
It's pretty bloody, all those baby lambs and goats. But it is the story of Passover that I know all of you have with your Jewish friends celebrated. You have sat at that Seder, you've heard these readings read. This is the reading that Jesus would have heard read. This is the story to be repeated, that God promises God's people a way out of no way. What is freedom to those people? What would it mean to walk out of slavery there? Nobody knew. I bet half the people that did it didn't believe it, couldn't imagine it. I'm sure Moses could not imagine what the next day would bring. But the story that they have told for generation after generation and that we inherit to do what we do at this table is there is a future promise of freedom greater than we can imagine. A story framed not in the story simply of America or Atlanta or our failures, but truthfully telling of all of them as we hear in the gospel. We tell the truth, we don't deny them. But further back, mythological in scale of what God is for, of what these communities are for. Some scholars say the people, the children of Israel become, begin to become the people of Israel on that night when they decide together to imagine forward something greater than any of them could do on their own. Something so radically hopeful and impossible that it would have to be of God. You know there were some that didn't do it. There had to be some too cynical for it. What a mess. We're all gonna kill some things together at the same time, roast them, eat them, put some blood on the lintel of our door, and God's gonna come? The God that let this happen to us is gonna come? That's what that guy Moses said? You know somebody thought that. I think it as I'm reading it, right? You know someone else that's out there like me? And someone was out there that had to be just cajoled into coming in, maybe, why not? Can't hurt that much. Someone probably had to be force-fed that little piece of lamb and their best friend went over and did the blood smearing for them because you know they're not gonna get it done. You know it was a whole community of people like us, just like us, finding it so hard to believe probably that that kind of hope was possible for them. And we go from that story of people walking into God only knows what, a journey of wilderness wandering for generations. To ours, the gospel and the reading from Romans say to us in our communities, you will struggle. You will struggle to be who you're meant to be, to com come together even with the great words of hope of our tradition behind us. Even with the memory of freedom from enslavement, you will forget you will forget, and even if you don't forget, you will annoy each other. You will frustrate one another. You are the same people that had to be organized. We are the same people that had to be organized for their freedom. Now, just to be super clear about that Matthew reading, because it gets under my skin, scholars have a way to make it a lot better, um, which is that there are some ways to think about that Greek passage, the, the Greek in that passage, that would translate it slightly differently than we have it. The translation we have says, and I, I'm sorry if this is tedious, but it matters to me. But the translation that we have says, basically what we bind, what we do on earth, we're trapped with. It almost sounds like karma, right? If, you, if we here decide a really bad decision, we're trapped with it into eternity. Now what's right about that is we can make a really bad decision, communities make bad decisions, governments make bad decisions, and we are trapped with the implications of that for generations. We can't forget, we can't stop, right? That's a lot of our history, that is true. 
But this passage actually can be interpreted to mean a little bit more of what is bound in heaven is bound in earth, on earth. That God demands of us not just to believe there is a time when things are better, and that is part of our teaching, but that actually we should desire it now, that we want it now. We call that God's reign of justice, the kingdom of God, God's will now. It is the end of our, fa- the our Father, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is here, here on earth as it is in heaven. That is the other way to, to, to flip that, which actually makes a lot more sense to me in light of what Matthew is talking about. Who is the kingdom for? What is the kingdom for? The least of these not the powerful, not those who can organize a thing to decide that someone is cast out, but the one who is cast out. And the Passover story is the one that reminds us throughout our tradition where we are to cast our eyes, where the work of God is, always among, as it says in Matthew, the little ones, right? the ones who are excluded. That is for us, it is our work. And in it, and even in doing the right thing, Paul is really clear with the Romans, you're still gonna irritate each other. You're still gonna hurt each other. Hopefully you don't mean to, but you are. And you've got a way forward because it is not that God has forgiven us once or asks us to figure it out so that we deserve forgiveness or repair or repentance or return. We live in the truth of the kingdom of God all the time. You stand here forgiven, healed, renewed in all times. Like that little St. Albans, holding all of the perspectives of the story all at once and insisting all of us on protecting one another on our own journeys. Now there was no sense of the loss of the great mission, but in that moment, sometimes all there is to do is to cry for the tragedy of it while we figure out the next step and the new way. What we know is we will stay together in the place we belong right here while we figure it out. Now we're gonna be talking about belonging a lot in the next couple of months. And I want you to know that we don't mean by that come here and be just like us. Come here, whatever the us is, frankly. Come here and love this or love that, that there's one way. What belonging means is we come as our full selves, like that young man that found his way in the military and me that worried for my friends and myself that wasn't safe to go outside for a while and those that were so, and were so broken up about their own beloved people still missing on that day that we stood up to try to say some words. We can hold all of it. Those of you that know the great secrets of our government and those of you that, um, that believe strongly right, that the, um, the America, our America, um, will always, always be strong and dominant and true. All of those, all of those understandings are held in every room like this. And we take the story of the Passover and God's liberating of God's people, and we apply it. And we apply it here in what is called a Eucharistic future. So you wouldn't say that if you were a Jewish person because it wouldn't make any sense at all and would actually be quite offensive. But as Christians, this is where we've taken it. We have taken this core story of their tradition and we bring it to this table where we're not asking you to eat lamb, we're not asking you to eat goat, but this bread that is offered is by the lamb that was slain, that is our story. This wine that we drink is that same idea of the cup that is shared. The descendant of those people that wandered in the wilderness all those generations becoming a people. And so we too, every year, maybe even every week, discern again how to become a people, what we as a people are called to do, what is true and right and loving 
here together as we heard the only thing we owe one another to be loving together and true. So it is not just anything, not just everything. We don't get to break up our community on something silly or small. The truth is the reign of God's justice, all of it in its great glory. You and I, our deepest desire is to seek it, but the path is here in relationship to one another. And are we not so fortunate that in these small acts of being together, we get to be a part of the inbreaking of God's kingdom of justice for all of us. As grand as that sounds, that is the work that you are about, whether that is the healing of the earth, the healing of relationship one to another, the healing of the great injustices of our society, the telling of our history, the serving in this parish. We all have a place, and we invite you on this day to come and find your place for this year, because we get to go together, and we get to listen together, to walk together, on this journey to some place that we have not yet seen. What a blessing.